Well, welcome here, friends. I'm going to invite you to come on back in and take your seats and uh, bring your beverages with you. And we'll continue with our teaching time together this morning. My name's Brad. I am part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho. And it's our privilege and our pleasure to have you here today. And I know uh, we apologize the coffee wasn't here as early as some of you were here and waiting for it. And uh, we're trying to keep the temperature in here also a little bit warmer than it was last week. So we're still fine tuning that and we appreciate your patience as we work through all of the logistics uh, and challenges that come with construction. Well, two uh, summers ago, Meg and I were over in England with Meg's family, with her parents, and we were invited to her dad's cousin's place for lunch. And it was a very, very typical English garden experience. Uh, a long table spread out with a seemingly endless supply of food, warm beer, ample helpings of good-humored ribbing, and at some point during the afternoon, photo albums came out. And there were pictures that emerged from Meg's grandparents' generation and the generation before that, and they were pictures that I had never seen. And one of the cousins had begun to keep some relevant family historical data. And they were trying to place all of us North Americans on this family tree. When were we born? Where did we grow up? What were our children's names? And they were putting all of this relevant data onto a big 11 by 17 sheet. And it struck me in that moment when I saw that sheet and piece of paper, when I married Meg 18 years before that summer garden party, even though I had never met them, those people were my people. That family, their family, became my family. And their history, even though it was largely unknown to me, became part of my history. Or more accurately, I became part of their history. And it was a strange feeling because when you grow up with your own family history and story, and you know some of the generations and the history and the people and the players, if you ever get married, then now you have a whole new set of stories to learn about, a whole new set of history books and narratives and genealogy that becomes part of your story, or really your story becomes part of that ongoing story. And so this fall, we're looking at the book of Galatians during our teaching times here at Jericho. And one of the profound questions that this group of people is wrestling with is still very relevant to us today. Because these new Christians, they've come from two very, very different sets of family backgrounds. One group has come from a Jewish family background. And they trace their lineage back through Abraham and through King David and the exile and then Jews being spread all because of persecution throughout the ancient Middle Eastern world. That was their story and they knew it well and they owned it deeply. And then the other family background 
coming into this new Jesus community were people who were not Jews. They were Gentiles. And they were coming out of a background of cultural paganism. They'd been accustomed to worshiping at local temples and participating in the Roman civic religion. All of the gods and goddesses of the ancient world that you can still see if you travel to places like Rome and Athens. But Paul, who was one of the leaders of the early Christian movement, comes through the region of Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey, and he shares his life with them, and he shares the message of Jesus with them, and people come from both Jewish and non-Jewish backgrounds to faith in Christ and become part of a new movement, a new family, this emerging Jesus movement. And like often happens, when something new begins to percolate. This new community had to wrestle with a question of family origin and identity because they knew that they weren't part of the Jewish synagogues anymore and they weren't part of pagan temple worship anymore. They were part of this new community, the body of Christ, the church. But whose lineage did they draw from and where did they belong? And so one of the pressing questions in the book of Galatians is where does this new community fit into God's story in history? Because there were people, false teachers, coming around and saying to this new group of Christians, hey, listen, you know what? In order for you to be a part of this family, your family tree really needs to be over here on the Jewish side of things. In order to belong, what you need to do is adopt all of the cultural practices that we've been ap about for generations that have marked our family. If you want to be a part and add some Jesus in, well, whatever. But make sure, first and foremost, you sign up to be a proper cultural Jew. All of the observances of Torah, the ancient law, Sabbath keeping, food laws and restrictions, circumcision. This is the, really the part of the way that you're going to prove you're a part of the family, said the Jewish teachers. And really this would have made life easier for the new Christians because when you're out in the religious wilderness where they are, not quite Jew, not quite Gentile anymore, you really get shot at from both sides. And so Paul had to write to this little group and say to them, listen, there's a real danger if you have come to faith in Christ that you will fall backwards and be deceived into thinking that what it really means to be a part of God's family is to conform to a set of external religious historical origin stories. And you'll be told that you need to adopt those in order to become part of this new legacy. And Paul says, we can't have any of that. So today we're going to look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. And we're going to see that God is writing a family story all right. But it's a big story. It's a bigger story than either of these groups might have imagined. And it extends down through history and you and I and millions of people who don't have any Jewish origin are being swept up into it. 
Turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Galatians chapter 3. And we'll start reading in verse 1. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Paul says to the Galatian community, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you, bewitched you, tricked you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. It's like you were there. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses, following all of those regulations? No, of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message that you heard about Christ. You see, when we think about family origin stories, they share certain characteristics. And we're going to look at four characteristics that every family story shares. And the first one, Paul says right away here, he says every family story has an origin, has a beginning story. How did it come to be? I don't know about you and your family. For me and for my family, our origin story goes back several centuries, uh, and it's a British origin story. In the late Middle Ages, if you were to receive a, a piece of paper that invited you, actually commanded you, compelled you to come to court, what is that called? Even to this day, it's called a, a summons. The person that brought you that was called a summoner. The summoners got adapted a little bit, smoothed over, anglicized a little bit, but the summoner was the one who brought you the summons. So that's our family's origin story. We worked for the legal system, doing the dirty work of getting people to come to court in the late Middle Ages. That's the origin story of the summoner name as I understand it. And Paul's writing to this motley crew of post-Jew, post-Gentile Jesus people, and he's saying to them, you have an origin story. Don't forget it. But if it's a Christian origin story, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, then your origin story comes by hearing and responding to Jesus and the message about Jesus. You received, Paul says, God's spirit because you believed the message about Jesus, the good news of God's saving work and his love for humanity. And it didn't start with obeying a set of ancient Jewish principles, the Torah. It started, Paul says, at the foot of the cross. When you heard about God's love, when you responded to God's grace and by faith and in faith, you said, that is good news. I want to participate in that. That is every Christian's origin story. The good news of God's rich and deep and saving and eternal love that God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to live, to die, to rise again so that you and I could be freed from the penalty of sin, which is death. And your origin story, if you are a Christian and you choose to accept and believe into that, like we talked about last week, is that Jesus died for you and that the Son of God loved you and gave 
himself for you. And Paul says to the Galatians, the meaning of this is clear. It had impact on you. It saved you and all who choose to embrace it as part of their own origin story. Those who by faith and in faith say yes to Jesus, who respond to Christ like Paul did and like the Galatian Christians did and like many of you here at Jericho have done. And Paul says to them, it doesn't really matter, and he's going to build a case through the next two chapters, what your ethnic origin was, what your cultural background was, what your economic or religious orientation is. If you say, I'm a Christian, your origin story started at the same place as every other person who is a Christian. Paul's, yours, mine, it started at the cross. That's the origin story for the Christian. And Paul also says that then in as a part of that origin story and your participation in God's family, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the second person of the triune Godhead came to live in you. And your origin story in God's one family means that you have received God's Spirit. See, in the book of Acts, chapter 15, the early church is having a meeting to discuss and decide what should we do with all of these Gentiles? How do we know that they're really Christians? I mean, some of them aren't observing the food laws and all of those things. And Peter, who remember is himself a Jew, in Acts 15, 8, stands up in the meeting and says this, God knows people's hearts and God confirmed that he accepted Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just like he did to us. See, the presence of the Holy Spirit living in you, working in and through you, is an evidence of God's grace. Peter goes on and says, God didn't make a distinction. He didn't just give the Holy Spirit to Jews and not to Gentiles. And so if God made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith, why are we now challenging God and burdening Gentile believers with a heavy yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe, Peter says, that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. And when you are saved by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your life, bringing the gifts and the indwelling presence and power of God to live and work in you. And friends, this has incredible implications for us personally and then also for the church today. And the clearest one that I can think of is that when it comes to a discussion about who is part of God's family, we need to draw the boundary line in the same place that Peter and Paul and the New Testament draw it, and that is around the line of faith. Faith is the entrance 
requirement. See, God is not in the business of making distinction based on how many generations of your family have been Christians before you. Or if you have, like Pastor Wally talked about a few weeks ago, Mennonite heritage, or if you went to seminary, or if you were living above or below the poverty line on the streets of Surrey or Langley, if you are part of God's family, you came through the same doorway that every other person came. And it's the doorway of grace by faith. Paul's going to go on to another church in Ephesus and say, it's not by works of righteousness. It's not by anything you've done. Lest you get really uppity and proud and want to boast about it, faith is the entrance requirement. If you have the Spirit of God living and working in you, you have it by faith. And you are part of God's family. And it's not just a one-time, okay, great, check that off the list kind of experience. No, uh, I love the way that the founder of the Vineyard Movement, John Wimber, who is very fond of uh, saying, the way in is the way on. In other words, the way into God's family, when God's spirit stirs up faith in your heart and you respond in grace, that's the way to live every day, every moment, every experience in God's family. The work of God's spirit in each woman, man, and child got you into this complex global family and the grace and the gifts of the spirit are the sustaining and underlying glue and unity that binds us together and keeps us together. The way in is the way on. So our origin story is our daily story. Let's keep reading Galatians chapter 3, because Paul goes on to describe a second feature of any family story, not just the origin. But in verse 3, he says, how foolish can you be? After you started your new lives in the spirit. Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Well, have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it wasn't in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obeyed the law? Of course not. It's because you believed the message you heard about Christ. This past week on Monday was Orange Shirt Day. And September 30th is set aside each year as a day to remember and think about the harm that was done to First Nations children in residential schools. As experiences perpetuated by our ancestors where we as settlers work to recenter their story and try and help them understand that if they wanted to become part of God's family it would be better if they became a little bit more Caucasian and white or more Canadian or more Christian and in that process of recentering stories were lost language was lost culture was suppressed history was suppressed. And here Paul is doing some recentering of his own, retelling of history. Particularly, he's challenging the history 
that some of the Jewish teachers are bringing in to the Galatian church. See, Paul is an accomplished student of the Hebrew scriptures. He knows his Old Testament. And so Paul is reminding his readers, and us as well, that every family story not only has an origin, but also has a center, a pivot point, a central event that defines and establishes and marks it, a place where the plot hangs, the main character, the main point. And going back into the Jewish writings and a Jewish understanding of history, Paul is moving the center of the story forward. He's retelling the story. And he's saying, okay, let's go back to the beginning of the story. And if we think about the story as it unfolds from Adam to Abraham, what is the center of the story? The center of that period of the story is God's defining promise in Genesis chapter 3 that though things look bad and though evil has entered the world, God promises that God will send a redeemer to rescue and set all things right. That's the center of that portion of the story. And those living in the time from Adam to Abraham clung to it. And then God comes to Abraham or Abram and makes a promise to him and says, Abram, I choose you and your family. And through you and your family, all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And so in the time period from Abram to Moses, the story centers around God's care for God's family. Because the period following Abram's story was an incredibly difficult period for those who were engaged in the story of God. God's family was taken in slavery to Egypt for generations and they clung to the promise of God that in the midst of that God would watch over and protect and liberate them and that became for them the center of the story and then God moves in history and rescues and redeems God's people from slavery in Egypt. He meets them in the wilderness, gives them the law, the Torah, the gift, the wonderful gift that had a beginning time. People did not always live under the law. And so from Moses through now all of history until Paul's day in the first century, the pivot point, the high moment in the story is the exodus and the giving of the law at Sinai, the gift of Torah to guide and to guard people from waywardness, to mark them as God's set-apart people wherever they go in the world, no matter how difficult and challenging it is. But Paul says to this group of people, gang, the center of the story is moved. In those three times, it's moved again. The story has a new center. It's not Adam. It's not Abram. It's not Torah. The story has become recentered in Jesus. And this has massive implications because the big story that God was writing all through history has a new plot twist, but it's one, Paul said, that God had always planned. God had always promised 
fulfillment of God's promises to Adam, to Moses, to Noah, to Abraham, to David. He promised to fulfill it in Messiah. And so Paul says Jesus and the life and the death and the saving work of Jesus fulfilled all of those promises that God made and moved the plot line to a new center point, that Jesus was the fulfillment of all messianic expectations. Jesus was the one that God had promised that had come to crush the evil one. Jesus was the rescuer sent to release from slavery. Jesus was the righteous one who fulfilled fully all of the requirements of the law. In other words, Paul is saying that not that Adam, Abram, and Moses had no importance. On the contrary, he's saying the same thing that I was feeling when I looked at those old pictures in the garden party two summers ago. That in some mysterious way, when you and I become part of God's family, those stories become your stories. And you and I become part of that family tree. Using language from another part of the New Testament, we've been grafted in to a story that has a long and deep and precious rootedness to it. But the story has been recentered, not on the law given to Moses, but on the fulfillment and liberty and love that's been manifest in Jesus. And what's interesting to me is even people who do not have any claim to be Christians whatsoever recognize that the story's been recentered. Novelist H.G. Wells said once, I'm a historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian, this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history, and this from a person who says, I don't believe he is who he says he was. So what do you do then as a person grafted in, what do you do with the Old Testament? Is it useful? Some parts of it are sure confusing. What do you do with Jewish history? See, Paul's not interested in some kind of cultural appropriation here. Not at all. Let's keep reading because he's going to use Abraham's story to make a key point as a positive example of what he's talking about. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. In the same way, Paul said, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of Abraham's faith. The real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. See, Paul is highlighting here a third characteristic of families. And that is that every family shares certain traits. Now, what are some examples of traits 
that you can think of that are shared by families? Just shout some of them out. What did you say? Stubbornness? <laughs> is that genetic or is that a learned trait? Could be both. I don't know. What, appearance. Give some examples of that. Hair color is a trait. What else? Eye color is a trait. What else? Height. Yeah, what else? Left-handedness, yes. Intriguingly, left-handedness is a trait. Uh, only about 7% of the population as a whole are left-handed. Uh, but if you have a left-handed person in your family and in the genealogy, it, it jumps to almost 50%, uh, and in some cases higher. Yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of traits that you can think of that are inherited traits, that are family traits. And so Paul is doing the same thing here. He's saying all families have traits. What are the traits of Abraham's family? Is it law-keeping? Is it circumcision? Is it observing food observances strictly? And Paul gets pretty radical, and he strips almost all of those things away, all of the cultural, historical traits. And he says, if we were to boil it down and ask, what is the primary defining trait of Abraham's family? It's faith. God counted Abraham as righteous because Abraham demonstrated faith. And verse 7 all who are children of Abraham share that same characteristic. They, too, put their faith in God. This is also true, then, not just of people in Jesus' day and after Jesus who hear about the message of the cross. Paul says this is also true of Abraham. And it is true of people before Christ. Listen carefully to Paul's language. In the same way that you believed, Galatians, Abraham believed. Abraham believed the Lord, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and the Lord counted him a righteous person because of his faith. In fact, the same word used here, what Abraham believed, it says that the word was the good news was proclaimed to Abraham long ago. That word good news should ring a bell for us. That is the word gospel. So Paul says the gospel was proclaimed to Abraham. And Abraham responded in faith. Wait a minute, you say. That's crazy talk. Jesus hasn't... We use the language of gospel to describe what Abraham believed. How does Abraham hear the gospel? How does God declare Abraham righteous without the cross? See, Paul is not devaluing the cross in any way, but what he is saying is that the family trait isn't whether Abraham wore a crucifix around his neck or understood atonement theories properly, the family trait 
is God revealed God's self to Abraham and Abraham responded and said yes in faith. The common denominator is faith in God. And anyone who's characterized by that kind of faith is a member of God's family. And this means that people in the Old Testament who demonstrated that kind of faith were, to use the language of modern evangelicalism, saved. They believed into God's family because they were gospelized and good news was proclaimed to them. And see, this has massive implications for us to think out and live out. And one of the implications for us, friends, is that as Christians, we need to understand that our family history doesn't start at A.D. 1. It stretches far back, much further than that. We have deep, deep roots because if you belong to the people of God, that stretches at least as far back as Abraham and all the way to Adam. We didn't arrive on the scene with the advent of modern North American evangelicalism or stretching back even further the story of the Protestant Reformation or going back even further. Our roots aren't even in the early church. The story of God's family, God's people, is one that God has been writing since the beginning of time for centuries and generations, and you and I are privileged to be a very, very small part of it right now. But it doesn't start with us, and it sure doesn't end with us. Because God has one family and is writing one story. Despite all of the divisiveness and the divisions and denominations, the massive theological and pragmatic divisions between Protestants and Eastern Orthodox and Catholics and Messianic Jews, God is writing God's story. And you might say things like, but Brad, Catholics? They have so many wrong ideas. I would ask you to think about your Catholic friends and ask the question, do they evidence faith in Christ? Are they filled with the Spirit? Do their lives bear the witness of transformation? And if those things can be answered in the affirmative, then they're part of God's family. Here's another implication of us being grafted in with deep roots to the story that God continues to write, and that is that there is no part in God's story or in God's family for anti-Semitism, where people say things like, oh, those bad Jews killed Jesus, we hate them, which has happened repeatedly throughout history. There is no place in God's family for that kind of of hatred. And there's also no place for an elevated Zionistic nationalism where we look at and blindly side with the contemporary Israeli government in everything that they do because somehow we feel that Israel has a special and divine purpose in God's future plans in history, so therefore it baptizes the inequality and treatment of Palestinians. That also is an error on the other side 
and another ditch to fall into because God's family is made up of all those through history who are grafted into Abraham's story by faith, not by nationality or by history or by obedience to the law. Paul drives it further in Galatians 3, 8 and 9. He says, what's more? The real children of Abraham are those who put their faith in God. But what's more, the scriptures looked forward to the time when God would declare even the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. Paul's saying God's always been about this business of it being about a global family, not just a Jewish ethnic family. God proclaimed this good news, this gospel to Abraham long ago when he said to him, all nations will be blessed through you. And so all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing that Abraham received because of his faith. This last week, Jared and I spent some time with my dad who is becoming, as he gets more and older and older, acutely aware of things like legacy. What is he leaving to his family? What legacy is he imparting? And so Paul here is asking the question, what is the family legacy that God's one family is leaving throughout history and throughout the world as they live out God's story. You see, every family has an origin. Every family has a center. The story of every family has a center point. Every family shares traits. And fourthly and lastly, every family has a legacy that that family is leaving and perpetuating. The Abrahamic legacy that is still being written in and through your life and mine is the same thing that God gave to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. And all who put their faith in Christ share in that same blessing that Abraham received because of his faith, but they also share in the responsibility and the call and the mandate that God gave Abraham to be a blessing. God's family is designed to be a blessing. See, friends, this is why we exist as a church. It is not for the spiritual comfort and ease of those who are already convinced. The mission that Jericho Ridge is called to is that we are to be a blessing. We are to find people who are lonely and who need community and invite them in. We're to find people who are lost and need hope and peace and invite them in. We're to find people who are hurting, who are struggling and wrestling with identity and addictions and meaning and find healing in Jesus and journey together. We are to find people who are under-resourced and who are poor, and whether it's in a place like Guatemala or whether it's in our local community, to feed them and clothe them in the name of Jesus. We are to find people who are spiritually seeking and point them to Jesus. This is our mission. 
as a church because this has always been the mission of God's family. And one day, at some point, our family story and our part of the family story will be written. The chapter on the little piece that's entitled Jericho Ridge. And there'll be lots of highs and lots of lows in that story. There'll be lots of people who have left their mark on different parts of that story. And in some ways, friends, we're beginning and we're, we're starting to write a new chapter now as we renovate this building. And this chapter, part of it is to be a vision, to be a beacon of hope and blessing in the lives of people here in Clayton and Willoughby. And this is a vision that gets written not just at the end of time, not just when Jericho Ridge is renovated, but it gets written right now. And it gets written week by week, line by line, page by page, chapter by chapter. And every single one of you is a co-author in this story because you have your part to write and I have my part to write. And so that means that we need to ask ourselves some legacy-oriented questions. Because legacy feels a little bit weighty to me. But really, legacy is just a series of stuff that you do and the person that you are and become over time, week in and week out. And so if legacy feels too weighty, just think about this week. What will your legacy be? What is the story that you are writing this week in the next six days? What contributions will you make into the lives of people around you? Maybe you're a teacher and you have students that are struggling. Legacy isn't built in a week if you're a teacher but it certainly is built week by week so that even years from now, when that student moves beyond your care in your classroom, will they remember you as a person who cared and who loved well? The choices that you make as a healthcare professional this week, the actions you take will form part of your legacy. Do you choose generosity, forgiveness, and love as a parent, do you choose faith and hope to live as a person who embodies the good news, who proclaims peace into difficult situations and friendships and calls others to places of thanksgiving and new life? What will your legacy be as you write it this week? Maybe you're a parent. And for parents, the question is, a more upfront and personal one. What impact are you having on your family? See, parents often spend a lot of time thinking about those in their care. What kind of financial legacy am I leaving them? What kind of educational legacy am I leaving them? But what about the spiritual and the emotional legacy that you are building this week? Over the course of this fall, what would your children say about areas that you're growing in, in your walk with Jesus and your character? If you're a parent, it's your responsibility to live a life worth imitating so that the legacy that you pass on as a parent or as a grandparent is one of faith. Ruth Ellen and the team are going to come and lead us in a time of responding 
to God in worship and in song. And I'm reminded that legacy also is not just a personal or individual project. This is something that we do communally all together. And so we have to ask ourselves as a community here at Jericho, what do we want our legacy to be? What do we want our story to be here in this neighborhood? Years from now, when every bit of raw land in Clayton and Willoughby is paved over, every single person has moved into every apartment building and family home that's been built They're all settled into life. What do we want our part in this community's story to be? And that's one reason, friends, that we believe firmly in investing in this facility because it really isn't about bricks and mortar and drywall and HVAC and washrooms as great as those things are. We're building and renovating this building because we believe it increases our potential to have better missional contact with our neighbors and to be an outpost of blessing and life to people in this community. See, friends, our legacy here in this particular geography is in some ways, though we're 15 years old as a church, just beginning. And I want to say to those of you who are new, this is a fantastic time to pick up your pen and start writing that story with us. And so maybe for you, that next step says, well, I just need to find out more. I should come to the newcomer's lunch or maybe take a step into that uh, membership class because we're writing a legacy here at Jericho. And it's a story that's really not about us. It's a story about God and God's grace and God's desire to save and rescue and redeem and heal, not just those who live immediately around us, but who live where you live, who work where you work. And so your call in wherever you find yourself this week is to be a blessing. You have been blessed by God so that you can be a blessing to those people. And we believe that also at Jericho, we are building not just a local legacy, but also a global legacy of blessing. Ali's going to go to England this week and be a blessing to her family and supporting churches there. Steve's just got back from Nigeria, where he was a blessing to people doing Bible translation because of the skills that God has given to him. One of the families that used to attend this church, the Workmans, have just moved to South Africa to give capacity to a whole new wave of Bible translation in sub-Saharan Africa because the blessing that God has poured into our lives is to be for the nations. I'd invite you to stand with me. I'd invite you to think about as we respond, what area of your life has God blessed you in? And how can you then be one who gives a blessing to other people. Our prayer team will be available at the side and at the back. And if you want to just say, you know what, I want somebody to speak a blessing over my life. I need somebody to pray with me in a difficult situation. Then we would invite you to come and do this. Taste and see, friends, that God is good. And God's love and God's mercy and the blessing that he continues to pour into your life 
is being poured into your life so that you can pour it out into the lives of others. Let's respond in worship.